0: Praise the Lord and grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's wonderful to see you here at First Presbyterian Church this Sunday. You know, last Sunday was our big fall kickoff Sunday and boy, this place was just was just teeming with activity. It was wonderful to be here, but that may have obscured the fact that in the rest of the world, they're paying attention to the fact that that college football kickoff weekend was actually this weekend. Did you know that this week is week zero of the college football season? Apparently, none of you all are quite as addicted or idolatrous of it as I am, but this was week zero of the college football season, and I just think it's fascinating. I love this time of year because this time of year, you see a lot of those house-divided license plates or bumper stickers or flags or t-shirts. You know what I'm talking about? They're the license plates that have one college logo on one side and a different one on the other. So people get them in a constellation of co- combinations, maybe Auburn and Alabama on the one, on one side or Texas and Texas A&M on the other or Ohio State and Michigan. Right now in our house, we don't have the license plates, but we could because we have one OU graduate in our home and one Texas Longhorn in school. So we're going through a little bit of fan whiplash every year, but the good news is we always win in October. So we, we love that. So those rivalries are all a lot of fun, but when I think about rivalries and these divided households, I, I go to something that has nothing to do with sports, and I think about something kind of political. I I remember an interview I once read with one of the top GOP strategists under George H.W. Bush, a wonderful woman named Mary Madeline. She was a consultant for the Republican National Committee and, and also an important staffer for President Bush. And I remember, and you may remember this, that she married James Carville, who was the I think the mastermind between Bill Clinton's 1992 and 1996 campaigns. He was the the organizer of the so-called war room that took him to the White House twice. And those two at some point along their careers fell in love and got married. And one day when they were doing an interview together, the reporter asked Mary Madeline how she, a top political strategist for the GOP, could marry her arch rival. And she looked right at Jim Carville and said, well, I've always said that I could marry a Democrat, but I could never be friends with one. (laughs) And I thought that that was a great line. It's the one time I've ever seen James Carville left speechless. Some rivalries are friendly and fun. Others are not. Unfortunately, the political rivalries that we have right now just don't seem to be like they used to be. They all seem to have been amplified by the COVID years. And it seems like a long time since we here in America have been the United States of America. E pluribus unum, from the many, one. Now you may or may not know this, but the most popular song in the country right now is a song called Rich Men North of Richmond. I don't know if you've heard it. It's by an unknown farmer, from Farmville, Virginia, named Oliver Anthony. The song is a country lament played on a solo resonator guitar with a few salty words thrown in for effect. But it's a song about frustration and about taxes and inflation and unfairness and manipulation by the people in power, by politicians, the so-called rich men, north of Richmond, Virginia, in Washington, D.C. And the the message of the song is very simple. It's a cry from the people to politicians and corporations and the media to stop the lies and all the other stuff that divides us and cut it out. Stop dividing us. Now rivalry and division in sports is fun. Rivalry and division in politics is ugly but division in the body of Christ is tragic. Last week we began a new study on the book of 1 Corinthians called The Gospel Solution. And we remember that it was hard to be a Christian in the 1st century AD. The first Christians lived in an environment of pagan idolatry and sophisticated culture, very, very you know very different from what we live in now, right? And the big question before them every day was, how do I live as a follower of Jesus Christ in a non-Christian world? And the book deals with a number of issues facing these new believers. And today we're going to look at the first problem that Paul addressed in the letter, the problem of division and how the gospel brings unity. So if you would... Turn to your scripture lesson for today. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. You can read it along on the screens or also in your, uh, in your pew Bible or in your bulletin. But hear now the word of God. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord. Your word is a lamb unto our feet and a light unto our path. We ask you to speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it is in the name of your Son, our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians was a letter written to deal with a variety of problems in a troubled church. And the first issue that the Apostle Paul addressed was the issue of division, of factionalism. This passage is part of a larger conversation that began back in chapter 1. Apparently, one of the women of the church, a woman named Chloe, got word to Paul that there was much strife and jealousy because people were dividing up into different camps. He'd been told that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And the church in Corinth was succumbing to factionalism. It was suffering from a bad case of politics. Now some people would say, we follow Apollos, who was a young, super smart, charismatic Christian teacher from Alexandria. So we're the real Christians. And others would say, we follow Peter, that's Cephas, the other leading apostle figure of the early church. So we're the, real, we're the real Christians, so go along with us. And others would say, we follow Paul, the founder of our congregation. So we're the real Christians, so get on board with us. And still others would say, well, we don't follow anyone but Christ. So you don't wanna to listen to those, to those other groups. We're the real Christians. And they said that it was all about the health and welfare of the church and the mission of the kingdom. But what they were really doing is they were playing power politics, leveraging the names of these leaders for the sake, for the influence and control of the group. And Paul accuses them of division or schism. The word schism, that Paul, the word Paul uses, means to split or to tear like you're tearing a piece of cloth or a piece of paper. Now, what does division, what does schism look like in the church? In the last 30 years, our church and the Christian world in general have been rocked by strife over doctrine and truth. We see that manifest in divisions in every denomination. We have experienced that ourselves and our own denominational struggles. But we need to draw some distinctions. When we are talking about doctrine or truth, we're not talking about trivial issues. We're talking about the truths and the facts that we bet our lives on and that we bet our world on now and forever. We're talking about the fundamentals that if you get these wrong, you're not talking about Christianity anymore. You're talking about something else. That's when we talk about doctrine. But a lot of the divisions that we see also come down to preferences. So if doctrine represents the things that we bet our lives on and that we bet our world on, then preferences, well, those are the things that represent the way we like things right now. These are the things that are important to us right now. And often in their minds, people begin to equate tradition and preferences with the truth. And rather than move mountains by faith the size of a mustard seed, they make mountains out of mole hills. Everything becomes a crisis. You all remember Rob Shelton, who is a former elder and member of this congregation, moved away several years ago. I, I did a wedding with Rob once. And, you know, a wedding is one of those times when people really do get truth and preferences mixed up quite a bit. And so one of the things that Rob used to always say in the beginning of a wedding rehearsal, he says, guys, remember this. We're going to keep the big things big and the little things little. We're going to keep the truth, the truth, and the preferences, the preferences. And we're going to remember that there's a difference. But there's still one more type of division that happens within the church as well. And this type of division affects every denomination, every disposition, whether theologically orthodox or liberal, and that is the issue of jealousy. I would even use the word competition. And in our economy, in our culture, in our emotional economy, competition is a matter of survival when we begin drawing up into factions, we begin to compete with one another within the body of Christ. Which church is the most popular? Which church or who is most influential? Which church has the best organist or band? Who has the best youth program? Who has the bigger Sunday school classes? Who has the most charismatic preacher? And we begin to equate these superficial things with doctrine and gospel truth. And all of a sudden, faithfulness is trumped by popularity. Numerical growth becomes more important than transformation. And what looks successful in worldly terms comes to define what is best, whether it is godly or not. And there's so much jealousy Not only between churches, but within churches, within age groups or different groups, within a single congregation. And it creates jealousy and strife in the body of Christ. You know, what's fascinating is that even though the early church was always under the threat of Roman persecution... Paul believed that the imminent danger to the church was not persecution from the outside, but division from the inside. And so Paul attacks this problem in the strongest possible terms. Division undermines the faith and witness of the church. And Paul even said that the real and present danger to the church was that the cross would be emptied of its power. Now, the shed blood of Jesus Christ is not worthless, and the cross can never be truly emptied of its power. But what Paul meant was that the people will be distracted, and their faith will be undermined, and the name of God will be ridiculed when the church is split by factionalism and jealousy and strife. On the one hand... Our faith is is emptied of its power. Division empties our faith of its power. Division undermines and frustrates the faith of people on the inside of the church because we begin to look to broken people, limited people, including ourselves, to fulfill our hopes, to fulfill our answers, to fulfill our salvation and strength and the needs that can only be fulfilled by an unlimited holy God. So division undermines the faith of the believer. It undermines the faith of people seeking truth and grace and peace and light and and clarity. They find themselves pulled in different directions and manipulated or abused and confused. And they begin to put their faith in the faction or in a leader. And they come to so closely identify that leader with the truth that if he falls or she falls, the whole house of cards collapses. And when this happens, it distracts people from the reality and the power of the real and living God. So on the one hand, it empties our faith of its power. On the other hand, it empties our witness of its power. The name of Jesus will become a joke or a meme or a caricature ridiculed by people on the outside because when they see division, they think, well, I don't want to be a part of that. They're meaner to each other than they are to anybody else. I'm better off without them, and frankly, I guess then, I'm better off with this Jesus as well. And so, the vision empties us of our faith, and it also empties us of our witness. But you know what? Factionalism is a symptom. The real underlying issue is spiritual maturity. Paul writes... But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. You know what he's really saying there? He's saying to those people, you guys are acting like a bunch of babies or kids or worse. You're forming up into cliques of the cool kids on one side and bullying bullying everyone else. And so if division is a function of immaturity, as Paul says, of the flesh, then unity is a function of maturity, which comes from the Spirit of Christ. And in this letter, Paul tells them, and he tells us, the way to unity. And not some superficial, politically correct, or coerced unity, but real, transformative, energy-creating, inspiring, difference-making unity. First, the way to unity is to concentrate on the Lord. He alone deserves all glory, trust, and credit. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. That's a theological statement. He is the one who grows and sustains the church, and he is the one who saves us. The apostle Paul writes that that this involves even our own salvation. In Ephesians, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, Paul didn't make this happen. Apollo, Apollos didn't make this happen. The Lord made this happen. God saved us before we ever deserved it. As Romans says, the proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were yet sinners, not after we'd earned it, not after we merited it, not after we deserved the credit, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So put your faith in him. Not in someone else, not in a human leader. Human leaders will let you down. Psalm 100 reminds us, know that the Lord, he is God. Paul is not God. Apollos is not your savior. I am not God. You are not God. Your favorite TV preacher or Christian author or childhood pastor is not God. Only Christ is worthy of our worship and praise. The key creed of the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord alone. The more we keep our eyes focused on him and keep following him, the more unified we will be. Next, the way to unity is to imitate Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to dress like him or look like him. It means to think and love like him. Paul said in chapter one, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. Now, when I read those words, that we should be united in the same mind and same judgment, I have kind of an aha moment. Because it's like these two puzzle pieces fall into place. Because there's another time when Paul said something similar to another group of believers. In Philippians chapter 2, he wrote this. He said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now here it is. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What this means is that we are to have the same mindset, the same attitude, the same mind as Jesus. Here's what that means. And Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Philippians 2. He says, think of yourselves the way Christ thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of the status quo no matter what. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. When Paul says that we are to be of the same mind, And same judgment, that's the mind he's talking about. He's talking about this mind and this purpose, the mind of Christ living for God, living for others and dying to self. Now here's why this is so important. Division repels people. But unity in Christ draws people. Unity in Christ is different, and it gets people's attention. It makes them curious, and through their curiosity, the Holy Spirit opens their minds and hearts to the truth of God and his life-changing grace in Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. But one thing is for sure. Wherever you have two church people, there will be at least three opinions. Now, Paul knew that we're never going to agree about everything, but this one thing is non-negotiable. We are to have the same mindset, attitude, and purpose as Jesus. Chapter 11.1, 1, Paul says it this way. He says, be imitators of me as I am Christ. And what he's saying is that we shouldn't be playing power politics among ourselves. We should be giving our lives for God and for one another and for the world like he did. Have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. So here's a question Do we really believe? that the Lord is in control or is it really up to us? That although we are God's fellow workers, do we really believe that it's God's field, it's God's building and only God gives the growth? Or, or do we think that we have you know, some credit in that? And are we really trying to follow Jesus by acting less like the world and more like him? having the same mind and the same judgment as Christ. You know, what kind of unity did Paul want us to have? Did he want us to have the kind of superficial unity where we all just go along and get along in politically correct diversity? Or the kind where the strong bully the weak into conformity and uniformity? Of course not. Unity does not mean that we all agree We could all agree to be con artists and manipulators. We could all agree on mutually convenient injustice. No, what Paul wants is what he said. Paul had a specific type of unity in mind. He said that we are to have this mind and this purpose, the mind of Christ. That is our unity. He had everything heaven had to offer, but he gave it all up to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we deserve to die. Also, that we could have the relationship with God that the Father made us to have. It's interesting. After the Republican primary debate Wednesday night, former RNC Chairman Rance Priebus made an observation. He said that sadly, in our country right now, division is profitable and unity is a loser. Wouldn't it be wonderful? If the people of Jesus Christ could show the world that unity is profitable and division is the loser. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, don't be like everyone else. Concentrate on God and love like Jesus. You know, there's there's one line from that Oliver Anthony song that gets me every time I hear it. It's the one that really, to me, sums up his frustration over the divisions and unfairness of this moment. He says, I'm living in a new world with an old soul. But I believe that, in fact, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to be living in an old world with a new soul. Or rather, a new spirit, which is the spirit of Christ. People need to see a different spirit in us. Not the old spirit of division, but the new spirit. of The sovereignty and affection and unity of God. And when we set aside our lesser loyalties and identities and focus on our identity in Christ to give him all the credit, to give him all the glory, to trust in him alone, then people will see the difference. And that's when we'll see the Holy Spirit really working. Would you pray with me? Lord, you prayed that your church would be one. And Lord, we, we know that that was a prayer to the Father but it was something that we needed to overhear. Lord, help us truly to understand the blessing of the Psalms that blessed our brothers when they dwell in unity. Lord, we know that we're always going to have differences, but Lord, draw us together in our faith and in our love. In Jesus' name, amen.